following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 1. Once again, if you're using our, the Bibles in the chair in front of you, it's page number 836, Mark chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, you missed part one of a two-part sermon, so you only missed half of it, so it's still the first sermon, so you're good. Uh, we're doing, uh, the sermon was too big to preach in one week, so we're preaching it in two. Uh, if you can go back and listen to it online later this week if you want to get the first part, but I will review it quickly for you in just a moment. Just like last time, we're going to look at just the first verse as we begin today. Look at verse one, if you will, here in Mark. Mark begins his gospel by writing this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we are returning now to this message that we began last week, or going to finish today as we begin this study of the Gospel of Mark. We are excited to see what you have to say to us. We are excited to spend time with your son, to just see him and hear him, to watch what he does, to, to walk with him down those roads. We, we, we know these stories because many of us have grown up with them, and yet we don't know them. We don't understand them because we don't really understand how his life and ministry is the central point of all of human history. And so today as we come back into this opening message of this brand new series, I pray God that you will help us to get an, a sense, an idea, an understanding of, of where the gospels fit in your larger plan. Help us to, to see your plan, to understand your plan, to to, to stand back in awe at how you have arranged human history, how you have arranged events, so that we can see what it is you're doing in this world. You have a goal. You're leading this to something. And we want to understand that so we can, we can be a part of it. Our stories matter not at all apart from yours. All the things that we live our lives for are, are worthless apart from you. And so as we understand your story and your your goal and your plans, we can live our lives accordingly and, and fruitfully within that. And so God, please bless our time. Make this clear. As always, protect me from saying things that are untrue or, or that would confuse. Lord, we want your word to go forth. We want your story to go forth, not ours. And so we give this time to you and ask your spirit to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, today is part two of a two-part opening sermon uh, on the Gospel of Mark. We're getting ready to work through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse over the next however many months it's going to take us to do that. Uh, I'm looking forward to working through this with you, as I said last time, just because we, we enjoy book studies most of all, because this is where we really get the meat of, of God's truth and what it is that he wants us to understand. And so I, I wanted to begin this series by helping us really understand where the story of Jesus's life and ministry fits within the larger story of, of the Bible within the larger story of what God is doing in this world. Because as I said just a moment ago in my prayer, if we don't get that, if you don't understand where the Gospels fit in that larger plan, then, then you won't really get the Gospels, and you won't really get Jesus either. You won't understand what it is he's, 
he's doing here and how that, that plays into all of the other, many other things that we read in Scripture. I mean, how is David connected to Jesus? And how is, how is this guy over here, this prophet and this event and this thing and this story, how do they all come around and point us back to Christ? That's the question. And so without this understanding of the, of the larger story of Scripture, we, we don't really get anything we read. And so we don't want that. We, we don't want to approach the Gospel of Mark like we perhaps have approached it too many times in life, maybe in Sunday school classes or in the past. It's just a collection of, of interesting stories about Jesus that we all need to be aware of. Because there are more than that, a lot more than that, and, and we want to see it as such. By the time we finish our study of Mark, I want us to look back, and, and I'm going to say this, and you're probably going to like roll your eyes at me, but I really want us to look back on this study and say that it was life-changing. And I'm saying this because I believe that, that if Jesus Christ really is the central figure of human history, if, if he really is the main character in God's larger plan for this world, in this larger story that God has, then there is no way that we can come face to face with him and walk away unchanged. So I, I believe sincerely that as we come to this, this study and as we walk down those hot, dusty roads of Galilee with him and sit on the hillsides and listen to him teach, and we watch the miracles and we, we, we kneel in, in agony at the, at the cross watching him die, and as we stand in amazement in the empty tomb three days later, I, I don't want you to simply go through that endeavor so that you can feel emotions you haven't felt in a while. Or simply so that you can uh, picture things better and it's, it's as good as a movie for you. No, no, no. I, I want those things so that you can feel the weight of who this man Jesus is like never before. I want for some of you, perhaps for the very first time, to really come face to face with this central figure of human history, this main character in God's larger plan for humanity, because you, you need to know him. You need to know him and understand him. So that's what these first two sermons are all about, okay? Just helping set the stage, helping you get an understanding of where this gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus' life and ministry, fits within the larger spectrum of what God is doing in this world and this story we call the Bible. Now, to tell the story in a way that is um, simple, I hope, memorable, I hope, I have chosen to broke the, the biblical story up into seven scenes. If you were here last week, you, you already are aware of that. But seven scenes to help us really understand the story. And those scenes are built around a pattern that I see repeated numerous times in Scripture. And to show that to you, I use this slide here to make sure that the pattern is clear. You see, the pattern itself is one of chaos, creation, or recreation. It's only creation the first time. Every time after that, it's recreation followed by a blessing. But unfortunately, because sin is present in this world, man always fails. He always fails. Failure always comes back on the scene, and so the cycle begins again, and we get back to chaos, and so on and so forth. And I showed you this pattern three times, three scenes last Sunday. Let me review them for you very quickly. In Genesis 1, the story began with the world in the chaos of lifelessness. Remember that? Those opening words of Genesis show us a world that is without form and void, and there is darkness upon the deep. And when you take those words together, you understand that, that what Moses is describing for us is a place that is lifeless, that is uninhabitable. It's not just that it's hard, it's that it's impossible. And so into this chaos, God speaks and makes the world. 
And even though God will always be the main character, he's the only one who can create. He's the only one who can recreate out of chaos. Even though God will always be the main character in each and every scene, he follows a pattern of always choosing a man, someone to stand as a representative for his people. And in this opening scene, of course, it's, it's Adam. Adam is the representative of all humanity, him and Eve. And so to Adam, God gives certain promises, certain requirements, certain blessings. And I told you that even though the word covenant isn't used there in Genesis 1 or 2, it sure sounds like a covenant. It's got all the parts of a covenant in there. And so I'm going to go ahead and call it the covenant, the Adamic covenant, okay? And I know some people use that word differently, that phrase differently. So take it the way I mean it here. You see the way in which God is going to work with Adam and with all humanity. A covenant, it's a very special relationship. it's, It's not just your cell phone contract. Remember that, right? In fact, in Genesis, I gave you a definition. I would almost be willing to ask if anyone remembers it, but I don't want to be embarrassed. So uh, I I gave you a special uh, uh, definition of what a covenant is. I called it a relational contract because it's relational. It requires two people to to be as one, to act as one, to come into agreement within the bounds of the the contract, the promises and requirements that that make up the covenant. It's, It's not just a cell phone contract. It's not a membership to Sam's Club, nor is it simply a friendship. It's a relational contract. It's an agreement between two parties. And, and in this case, God is defining how he will interact with his people, what he will expect. But of course, unfortunately, we all know what happens. Adam fails, right? And the failure, and this is important, is not simply a failure of eating fruit. It's not simply that he disobeyed something that God told him to do. It is specifically a failure to believe that God really is who and what he said he was. That's really what it it is when you get down to it, because here God is, he makes man in his image and likeness, he tells him things to do and one thing not to do. If you do this, you're surely going to die. And here comes the serpent and says, if you eat this, you will be what? Like God. But wait a minute, wasn't he already like God? Wasn't he already made in his image and likeness? Yes. So, So what's the temptation here? Adam wants something more. And even though God said, you'll surely die, he's like, I won't die. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. And so he, he eats the fruit and sin enters the world. Their rebellion leads them and the rest of humanity into sin and failure abounded everywhere. Well, eventually God's patience with humanity runs out, as you know there in those early chapters of Genesis. And so we bring, uh, come now to scene two. Scene two opens with a new chaos. This time it's a chaos of the flood. God, in many respects here, is returning the world to its original state, watery, dark, lifeless place, destroying all life on earth, except for this one man, Noah, and his family and the animals on the ark, through whom now God will remake the world his, his representative now is Noah. When Noah gets off the ark, what did God do? He gives him blessings. He enters into a covenant with him. He renews many of the aspects of what he said to Adam, gives him a few new things. But, but what happens right away in the story? Noah fails. They all fail to believe. All humanity fails to believe. And so they decide that since God really isn't who and what he says he is, since we want to be our own God, since we want to rule our own lives, let's all get together in the land of Shinar and build a tower up to the heavens. And so God comes down and he looks at what they're doing and he says, this isn't good. And we enter scene three. And he brings the chaos of Babel on humanity. 
And, and we read that story, and as I said last week, we don't really get it. We don't really understand what, what's going on in Genesis chapter 10 in the, in the Tower of Babel story. It's, it's one of those you just kind of gloss over and move on. But understand that this is the very first time in human history where humanity cannot function as one. He, he brings chaos to them. He divides them into many different peoples, and out of these many different peoples, God begins the work of recreation by choosing one people. One people, the man Abram, Abraham as we know him, out of his country from his father's house to make his own. And to Abram, he gives certain promises, blessings, responsibilities, a covenant. And there's many components to this covenant, but I focus on one only by way of review that is, that through this man Abraham, all the families of the earth would be what? Blessed. And so, how? What's going to happen? Well, don't know yet. But there's something bigger going on now. You begin to get the sense that, that whatever's happening in these patterns is much, much larger than any one scene. It's, it's something bigger, something more. It's a theme that is spreading across all of the stories. But even this great man of God, Abraham, failed. His son Isaac failed. His son Jacob, grandson Jacob failed. The whole family fails. They all sin. They all fail to believe God's promises. They all fail to act in faith with the things that God has given. And eventually they end up in Egypt. And that's where we left off last time here in this, at the end of scene three. And so let's just begin again today. They're here in scene four. Here they are now in Egypt. They're growing in number. But eventually something begins to happen. The chaos of scene four is the chaos of Egypt. As the book of Exodus opens, what do you learn about the people, the, the, the children of Abraham in this country? That a new Pharaoh has arisen, right? And he doesn't know their people, this people of Joseph, the people that had come into the land. And so he begins to oppress them, to kill them, to kill their children. He begins to make them slaves and enslave them there to build things for him in Egypt. And the situa situation looks pretty bleak. And there is a real danger from a human perspective as, as the reader in the story. It seems that there's a real danger that somehow God's plans are going to be thwarted by the actions of this Pharaoh. It, it doesn't look like there's any hope. But as in times past, God's plan is safe even in the chaos because God begins to recreate now by calling out his nation through, of course, the man Moses. And if you're tempted to think of the, the, the story of the Exodus as something other than an act of recreation, let me try to help you understand what's going on in this story because it is, it is much more involved than what uh, Charlton Heston has led us to believe, okay? In, in, in Genesis chapter 1, well, it's, it, that's the story, I called it the prologue of the whole Pentateuch. Okay? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He begins the book of Genesis with a prologue explaining how God made the world. And in that story, how does God make the world? Someone say it. He speaks. Very good, okay? Excellent, you all get an A. He speaks. How many times does God speak? Now there's Six days of creation and one day of rest, right? So maybe six times? No, not six. Maybe seven, because God likes sevens, right? That's his thing. So maybe it's seven times he speaks. No. When we were in Genesis 1, months and months, over a year ago now, I pointed out to you specifically that there are ten instances in which God speaks in the creation story. And, and you can go back and count it yourself. Look for every time it says, and God said, or 
God spoke saying, these, these markers indicate 10 specific words of God in the creation story. How many times does God speak, let my people go to Pharaoh? How many times does God intervene with miraculous, amazing displays of his power in this story? Ten. It's not simply coincidence what we're seeing here in the story. The the story of of the Exodus is far more than what we've seen in the movies of Charlton Heston versus Yul Brynner and some awesome contest of hair versus no hair. It's It's more than that, okay? You can't read Exodus in a Sunday school way. You have to read the Exodus as a story of God's recreation of his people out of chaos or the story doesn't really make sense. He calls them out as a nation by his word and according to his will. And if you're still not convinced, just look at what God does next. He blesses them and he enters into a what with them at Mount Sinai? A covenant. He he leads them out. They cross the Red Sea. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. He takes Moses up on the mountain and he gives him how many words? Ten. We call them the Ten Commandments. They're the beginning of the the Mosaic Covenant. We also call that the law. Here in this covenant, God is making promises to his people, but he's also giving them instructions about how it is that they're now supposed to live as his nation, as as his people, where they're going. He wants his people to be different, to live righteously and worship him correctly so that they can know him, because that's what it's all about. The law isn't being given to to punish them or make life hard. It's being given so that they can know him, because that's what God's always wanted. Since Since the garden, that's what he's always wanted, to believe that he really is who and what he says he is. But of course, you know what happens next, right? As always, there's a failure to believe every single time. And it's not just one act. That, that defines this failure. It's numerous acts, from, from their complaining about God's provision in the wilderness to their attempted rebellion against Moses to their refusal to enter the promised land when God wanted them to, but even once they get into their failure to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Over and over and over again, this people who just watched God destroy the land of Egypt refuse to believe him, that he will take care of them, that he will be their God, and that he will protect them and love them for all time. They still believe the lie. Remember the lie we talked about at the end of of last Sunday? They still believe the lie that somehow they can be their own God, that they can control their, their own fate, that they can live their own lives for themselves. And so scene five begins. It's God bringing chaos once again. But this time, I think the chaos is a little different and not what we might expect. This time, I think the period of the judges is the next time of chaos for God's people. Because here's Israel, finally in the land, right? You think everything's good. They're in the land. But things aren't good in Judges. If you've read the book, you've you've figured it out. Things aren't good in Judges. There are continual problems. There, there is trouble and there, is, there are attacks from outsiders, from people within the land. There's fighting and there is anarchy. In fact, do you know the last verse of Judges, what it, what it says? You, you should look it up. Because it ends on a terrible note saying that at that time there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
There's, there's anarchy in Israel. There's anarchy in the land. There's chaos everywhere around them. But it's different a little bit in this time in the sense that each time it starts to get really bad, God sends a deliverer, a judge. Think of Gideon. Think of Samson. Think of Deborah. These people who come in and temporarily bring some relief. But, but it's never complete. And it's never permanent. And as you keep watching this happening over and over and over again through Judges, you begin to get the, the idea of like, maybe we need something like longer lasting. Maybe the band-aid on the gunshot wound isn't enough. Maybe, maybe we need something a bit more than this. The, the chaos this time begins to bring certain things to light, even about the, the act of recreation that needs to occur. And so finally, finally God steps into Israel's situation by establishing a king. He gives them King David. This is the man through whom God will now work. This is the man through whom he will speak and lead his people. And it is to this man David that he will establish, a, or with this man David, that he will establish a what? Covenant. You can guess now. They're all pretty easy at this point. Okay, we call it the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant, he makes a promise to David that is, that is unconditional. He promises David that he will give him an heir from his house, it says, who will sit on the throne forever. Now, you're logical people. You just think about that for a moment. All, David and all of his descendants are going to die, every single one of them. And don't tell anybody, but I'm going to give you a sneak peek ahead, okay? If you just look ahead a little bit in the story, you see that David's line will be cut off the line of kings, it sounds Lord of the Ringish. The line of the kings will end, all right? Tolkienish, I should say. It, it, it's going to end. And so you see this promise here in 2 Samuel 7, and you're going, he's going to have a, a, a descendant from his house who will reign forever? Again, something begins to trigger that maybe there's more at stake here than just David. Maybe God is, is communicating something to us about his larger plan that, that in what we see, it is David here at this point in the story who, whom God is establishing as king, but, but I think something more is going on, a, a larger plan. Meanwhile, God has blessed David. He's given him promises that he has said will last forever, but as always, God's people fail. David fails in numerous ways, numerous times, fails to believe that this God who has appeared to him and made these promises to him and has blessed him abundantly, he fails to believe that this God is enough for him. Solomon fails. Rehoboam fails. The nation of Israel is eventually divided into two. You know those stories probably. The, the northern kingdom of Israel abandons the true worship of God and spirals downward in rebellion. The southern kingdom of Judah does the same. Even though it's still ruled by David's descendants, they go down, down, down. And so with the nation completely in rebellion, God brings chaos once again. What's the chaos this time? Anyone know? Exile. Exile and occupation is the next chaos. The Assyrians come from the north defeat the northern kingdom and take them into captivity. They empty the land, gone. God wipes it clean. The Babylonians come in from the, from the east and take the, the kingdom of Judah off into captivity, wipes it clean, deports almost everybody in the land. God's patience with his people was done. It was done. 
He had given them time. He had sent prophet after prophet after prophet, speaking to both kings and commoners alike, and all of them together as a people ignored. They did not turn. They refused to stop their rebellion. And so God cleansed the land by removing his people from it. And even though he allowed some of them to return after 70 years, nothing was the same. The nation's destroyed. The temple's destroyed. They're going to rebuild parts of it, but, but it's gone. The kings are gone. The, the people were once in need of God's recreation because only he, only he can change chaos into blessing. But for over 400 years, they waited. Waited for God to recreate once again, to work through a man to bring about blessing for his people. But, but now stop at this point and realize something. With every man that God had chosen up to this point, what, what had happened? They all failed, did they not? They all failed to believe that God really was who and what he says he was. They had all rebelled against God's rule and reign. Every single one of them, to a T, in all their different ways, failed to believe God. And so clearly, if a man is going to step to the front this time in God's act of recreation, it's going to have to be a different kind of man. It's going to have to be something different than before because everything before has failed. It's going to have to be one who could defeat the rebellion, stop the cycle of failure. And so, Paul tells us in that very famous verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, what happened? God sent forth his son. Jesus is the act of recreation at this point in the story. God is intervening in human history once again but not like he had done before. He speaks to the two most unlikely people you'd ever find. A carpenter in a, in a dirty little backwater town in, in Galilee, Nazareth. And, and his, his fiancée, probably a teenage girl, he appears to them and he says, hey, I want you to understand what's about to happen. You, virgin, you're about to be pregnant. You're about to conceive. And through you, the Savior will come. The Messiah will come. And just like the Spirit moved over the face of the waters in Genesis 1, you read in the Gospels that the Spirit moved across the womb of Mary and she conceived. And the Gospel of Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, they tell us that the whole story is telling us about this great act of recreation through Jesus Christ. Because in his life, you see the fulfillment of every covenant previously made, every single one. He would fill the earth, would he not? Not with physical descendants, but with spiritual ones. He would exercise dominion over the earth through his miracles. He would be the son of Abraham who would bring blessing on every family on earth. He would be the perfect man who would never sinned against God or violated his law. He would be the king from the house of David, nonetheless, who would reign forever and ever. Every single promise, every single requirement would find its fulfillment in this man. But as great as all that is, that wasn't his main reason for coming. Not simply to fulfill promises and covenants and, and things such as that. He came to establish a covenant. We call it the new covenant. That's the, the blessing he was bringing to humanity. This covenant allows sin and pain and death to once and for all be defeated, where mankind could, could finally enjoy the eternal life that he was originally created to enjoy. He, Christ came to bless us, but it, 
it would come at a terrible cost, and, and we know that. We've just finished singing about it. In order to conquer sin, someone had to pay for it. And so on the night before he died, he's sitting in an upper room with his disciples, and he, he takes a piece of bread, and he, he breaks it. He, he's, he's picturing for them the transaction that's about to take place. He, he takes a piece of bread, and, and he breaks it, and he shows them what's about to be done to his body, to his very, very soul. He's about to endure agony of untold proportions. And when we read that, we, we tend to think of the crucifixion, which is, is a terrible, horrible, agonizing death that, that none of us would want to experience. And we're not minimizing that, but understand the cross is not the, even the lion's share of suffering that Jesus endured. Not even close. Because on the cross, he was going to take the sins of all humanity on his shoulders so that God could pour out all of his wrath on him. He was going to take our punishment. He was going to take God's wrath for us. And so it, it was more than just his body that's being broken on the cross. For the, for the first and only time that we're aware of, the, the unity that is the Trinity, the, the community of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, was for the very first time broken. As God the Father turns his back on his Son, and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the real agony of the cross is not the nails. The, the real pain of the cross is not the loss of blood and the humiliation of hanging there naked for all to see. The real agony of the cross is bearing our sins, my sins, your sins, and having the Father pour out all his wrath and turn his back on him. Jesus, in the totality of his being as both God and man, was about to be broken for us. Next, after he broke the bread, he showed them the cup. And you remember what he says to them? This cup is the what? It's the new covenant. In my blood, do this in remembrance of me. It's not the cup. The, the cup is picturing something. He, want, he wants them to understand that it is by the blood of his broken body that he will make a new covenant with mankind. Because we had broken every other one prior. <laughs> we had failed at every front. Every time he came and he made something new, we broke it, we failed, we failed to believe. Thankfully, though, this new covenant is not about us. This new covenant is based on his blood. This new covenant is based on what Jesus did for us on the cross. And what does God want from us? Simply that we believe. Isn't that interesting? The one thing that we had failed to do as, as humanity, as, as his people, as his creation, as his image bearers, the one thing we have failed to do over and over and over and over again, he now comes and says, this is all I want. Believe. That we believe that this man Jesus really is who and what he says he is. That he is the son of God sent to earth to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can have eternal life with him forever. That's it. That's it. No more bulls and sheep to sacrifice. No more law to, to keep. He just wants mankind to believe. And so he sent out his disciples to spread this good news, this gospel to all humanity, to every tribe, nation, people, and tongue across the whole earth. And though many have believed and many are believing today, there are many, many more who continue to fail to believe. 
But God has been patient with man. Remember, remember Peter says that in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says that God isn't slack concerning his promises. For everyone who's sitting around wondering, why, why isn't he back yet? He's not being slack with his promises. He's being patient because he wants everyone to come to repentance. But he's also promised, and despite that patience, he's also promised that a day will come when his patience will come to an end. Both Jesus and the apostles made it clear a time of tribulation is coming upon this earth. There, there will come a day when, when God's patience will have run its course. And there will be no more patience, no more delay, no more waiting. God will destroy this earth one more time, not with water, but with what? With fire. That's, that's what he says. That's the chaos. But there's also a final act of recreation left as well. God has promised to make a new heavens and a new earth, a, a new world, if you will. But notice this time, it's not focused on a man anymore. At the end, it's all finally and forever summed up in God himself. That's been the point all along. And forevermore, we will be free to enjoy the blessings of eternal life in God's presence. Sin and failure are finally gone. Notice there's not another transition. It's finally gone forevermore. And the world that began in lifelessness ends in eternal life all because of Jesus. See, that, my friends, I mean, we were flying there, right? That, my friends, is the Bible. That's the story of the scriptures right there, a story of God's plan for this world. This is why I say to you that Jesus Christ is more than just a Sunday school character. He is the central figure of human history and the main character in God's larger plan for this world because without him, nothing works. Nothing makes sense. Without Jesus, none of the covenants would have ever come to pass or be fulfilled. Without Jesus, man is doomed to live in sin and failure and death forever. Without Jesus, man can never experience the eternal life that God originally intended for us to enjoy. And without Jesus, man can never know God, never have the relationship with God that is there for our joy and for his glory. Without Jesus, the story doesn't work it doesn't make sense but with him with him everything comes together perfectly and all the wrongs are made right and so as we begin the book of mark and you probably were like why did you make me turn to one verse like right at the beginning two weeks in a row you could have just said it and we would have been good there's a reason i had you do that see you need to understand that when Mark opens his book by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that there is, there is far more significance in those words than what you may have realized either of the first two times we've read them. Because the gospels represent for us a new beginning. A new beginning in the story of God's plan. We, we, when we were studying Genesis, we called that series Beginnings because it is. It's the story of the beginnings of this world and of God's plan. It's, it's a beginning, the beginning of many things. But this, but this, the book of Mark, it's a beginning too. It's a new beginning. And so I said to you at the outset of today's message that I want our study of Mark to be life-changing for us, and I mean it. I, I, I sincerely mean it. There's some of you in this room, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing, that you are failing to believe that Jesus Christ really is who and what he says he is. You may have been in this church for years. You may have never been here before. I don't care. You, you do not believe. I am saying to you today 
that God is being patient with you. He's being patient with you. But his patience will run out or your time will. One or the other, you don't have forever. That, that's why the scriptures tell us that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of decision. Not tomorrow because you're not, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're called today to believe in his son, to place all your trust in him and in his sacrifice for your sins, to give up your rebellion and to believe. That's all he wants. And I hope that as we work through Mark together that some of you will see Jesus for the very first time. You, you may have been aware of him, you may have heard his story, but you will see him for the very first time and bow your head in faith and repentance as a result. And for the rest of us, the, the truths that we have seen over the last two Sundays should remind us that we are in the last days, okay? We don't talk about that, we don't use that language a lot, particularly in this generation, but Jesus said it. The apostles said it, and it's true. I can't tell you chronologically when this season will end, but I can tell you one thing, that the next scene is the last. I, I, I can tell you that for sure. It's the last. The story is almost done. Knowing that, how should we live? Where would we or should we spend our, our time? To what things should we give our energy? And for whom should we live, for ourselves or for him? And I'm not just asking those questions to, to like make you feel bad. I'm telling you, Jesus is going to ask you these questions. As you work through Mark, he's going to ask you these questions. He's going to call you to himself. He's going to call you to discipleship. He's going to demand things of you, and we will all have to make decisions. That's why I said to you that I don't think we can come face to face with the real Jesus, with the Jesus of Mark, and walk away unchanged. I, I don't think that's possible. You're going to make a decision about him one way or the other. Believer, unbeliever, I think all of us in here will be changed one way or another and will experience a new beginning as well because that's who he is. As the central figure of human history, as the main character of God's plan, Jesus Christ demands an answer for each and every one of us about our lives. And so as we begin this study next Sunday, as we begin working through Mark, my prayer for us as a church, my prayer for each of us individually is that we will come with tender hearts, open to changing in whatever ways God shows us. Whatever ways. Good, <laughs> bad. I'd rather some of, some of you just make a decision to abandon him altogether and go and keep playing a game. Good or bad, make a decision about who Jesus is. He demands that much. Let's pray.